0: Only
1: redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the face of motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Chelsea Connaboy. She is a health and science journalist who was part of the Boston Globe's Pulitzer Prize winning staff for coverage of the Boston Marathon bombing. Chelsea lives in Maine with her husband and their two young sons, and her new book is Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Rewriting the Story of Parenthood. Welcome, Chelsea. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to start with a sentence from your intro, which I loved, really responded to. I thought, yes, this is it. You say, motherhood is too precious to look at directly, to dissect. Instead, we see it sideways. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that?
2: There's so much around motherhood that is just you know, carried forward in these stories we tell about what it means to be one in our culture. And it's really, there's a lot of pressure to live up to those stories and to fit them and to match them. And I think that they often get in the way of really looking squarely at what this big life transition really looks like and feels like and telling our own stories with all of the gnarly bits and all of the wonder. And that's really what's at the heart of this book is like peeling back all of those cultural stories and seeing from the science and the history and the truth of like our own stories, what it really feels like. We've talked to so
0: many different people. Some come at it from a sort of instinctive, some come at it from a sociological perspective. What's the benefit of coming at motherhood from a scientific perspective.
2: Or a a spiritual perspective or a feminist perspective. I mean, there's lots of frameworks that you can use to look at this life experience. I've actually gotten some pushback even from OBGYNs. I've had a conversation with one recently who said, yeah, there's lots of ways to see to frame this transition for people. This seems like just one of them. I get that. But also, this is our physiology, (laughs) our neurobiology. It's not optional. It's what happens to our bodies and our brains. You can take the science and you can see it. You can translate it in lots of different ways. Maybe you won't Take the same things away from it that I did. Maybe you'll put it into a different framework. Maybe it will help you to understand your own spiritual framework for motherhood. But to ignore or to sideline what's happening to our actual physiology leaves us missing information that we need to understand what we're going through. This book is
1: all about the ways in which we've been led to believe that the mother brain is something that we just have. That it's innate, it's automatic, and most importantly, it's uniquely female. So that this work of caregiving really does have to be done by women because we we're just born to do it, and we're just born being better at it. So it seems to me, after reading this book, like the science helps you understand that that's not really true. That's a story that we've been told for a long time.
2: Exactly, it totally flips that story on its head and says that, in fact, this the things that shape the parental brain. Our hormones, you know, significant hormonal shifts and experience. Really all parents (laughs) have both of those things. A baby is a really powerful stimuli for the brain. So the hormones kind of prime you for exposure to the baby. And then it's the experience that matters that like really shapes you into a caregiver for your particular child. And that happens whether you're a gestational parent or not, whether you come to it through adoption or Fostering, or f- through some other means, or you know, surrogacy. But the the mechanisms are very different depending on which path you take to parenthood. But the outcomes are are quite similar, and that has really broad <laughs> ramifications, both in how we like see our own individual experiences. For me, I've recognized the process of becoming a parent much more, given myself like patience in that and room for mistakes. And then there are also these broad social political implications of whose biology makes them capable of being really good caregivers. And what does it take for them to get there? This is a time of really powerful adaptation, and really significant vulnerability. And what do we need to do to make sure that more parents get through it in as healthy a way as possible.
1: I think you're talking about also, I want to underline, we're talking about a much longer period of time than is generally looked at, right? So we generally think of this as, The pregnant woman's thing and it's like pregnancy changes you and childbirth is really intense and then go home and good luck with that so you're saying (laughs) first of all it's not just the birth giving parent that we should be considering here but it's also we kind of stop at birth and send you home 36 hours later with a tiny baby and we're missing a whole huge part of what happens next that the mother brain you're talking about happens next
2: Yes. If we talk anything about what happens after you go home from the hospital, it's, you know, we might give people a a checklist of like symptoms for baby blues. And here's how to get help if you think it's something more than that. And we ignore that all of those like major hormonal shifts, there's a sense that it kind of like settles out, like you're just waiting for the waters to settle, and then you'll go back to normal. And that's not what happens. (laughs) Those hormonal shifts, you know, are doing all sorts of things in your body to keep your pregnancy going and to start childbirth. And initiate labor and lactation, but then they're also acting on your brain. And they're really helping you to be ready to those intense cues that your child is giving you, that your newborn is giving you, and, and then pushing you in those first months, especially into this period of really hyper-responsiveness. The point of it really is, I see it as as two things. Like, our babies need us to pay super close attention to them. They're these tiny, vulnerable, nonverbal creatures who can do nothing for themselves. You know, they can't even regulate their own body temperature. <laughs> and, and so they need for their survival, they need us to pay really close attention. But all of that attention also really pushes us into this intense period of learning that molds the brain, that changes our the circuits in the brain that shape our social cognition and how we read and respond to other people. And we essentially get better at that over time. And there's implications for the whole rest of our lives, meaning beyond our children and then also over our whole lives. And we don't talk about that at all. I had my first baby in my mid to late 30s.
0: And I had such an experience of taking the baby home. And I felt like, well, my mom was with me. I'm older. I'm settled. I have a place to live. I'll be fine. And bringing this first baby home and being completely overwhelmed with a sensation of anxiety void i have closed the door to my old happy life and now my life is like trying to keep an infant alive i have no idea what i'm doing and this overwhelming anxiety i felt this was now 14 years ago and i my experience was that i felt like my doctors and caretakers were saying like are you experiencing depression? And I kept saying, I'm not at all. I don't feel depressed. But it was years later that I realized that that unbelievable flood of anxiety was a postpartum problem that was overtaking me. It's interesting to me that that was only 14 years ago, and that was not part of the conversation at all. Nobody was saying your brain is going through something that is overwhelming your system and if i had understood that i feel like i would have had a much easier experience of this very out of body anxiety that i was having instead
2: my experience is very similar to that i really was overwhelmed with worry and i really i worried about the worry you know i i thought like what is this what's happening to me have i already failed him, my son. And Helena Rutherford is a researcher at Yale Child Study Center and does a lot of work on the parental brain. And she said that maternal anxiety is really hard to study, partly because almost every mother endorses symptoms of anxiety. How do you separate what's adaptive from what's clinical. you know, How do you separate what is a problem from what is part of the process? And I worried to some degree when I started this book about whether I was going to somehow undermine the process to reduce stigma around postpartum mood and anxiety disorders. Was I going to make it sound like, oh, all of this is normal. Don't worry about it. It's just part of the process. Somehow to make it like seem like people who complained about it were making a big deal out of something
0: that everyone goes through.
2: Exactly. And of course, the opposite is true. The reality is distress, psychological distress is like a really inherent part of this transition. I really believe that. I don't know anyone who hasn't had it to some degree, maybe not like you and I did, Margaret, but they felt a lot of anxiety during pregnancy or they had fertility loss or childbirth trauma or whatever shape it takes. It's just such an upheaval for every facet of us, including our neurobiology. I wonder if this is true for you too. Like I felt like a very capable person going in. Right. I was like at, <laughs> at my most capable point of my life. Yeah. I was, I managed people in my job. I worked in a newsroom, my uh, high pressure work environment. I had a loving husband. I had family support. I was probably more financially stable than I've been at any other point in my life. And so I just sort of felt like, yeah, I've, I've got this. I knew of course it was going to be hard. I wasn't going to sleep. You know, I knew those things, but I did not anticipate the shift in my in- internal self, my inner life, and how that would affect my experience. And if we could normalize that, I really believe it would really demand of us to, that we do better for People in that time of their life. And hopefully it would make it a lot easier for more people to say, this normal process that's filled with distress, I'm having a hard time with it and I need a little extra support.
1: We're talking to Chelsea Connaboy. She's the author of Mother Brain, and we'll be right back. Margaret, I've got a go to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses. First two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. There's another part of this taking the baby home from the hospital thing. I'm not going to be anxious. I know how to do this. For me, it was like I've been babysitting for free since second grade. I got this. And I kind of did. But there's another part that can catch parents by surprise, which is, as you say, we think we're told that there's a circuit in our brain that's going to flip. And like a mother bird, like a mother anything, we're just going to be flooded with love and care for this tiny baby. The maternal instinct is going to take over and the warm and fuzzy is just going to carry us through all those late nights because they're only little ones. And you just think that there's a, a switch that will flip. And sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't.
0: And sometimes it doesn't take it from me.
1: And then that's another thing to freak out about. Can you talk a little bit about that and what your research
2: found? Even if we do talk about like how the hormones act on us after childbirth, so often the narrative is you're flooded with oxytocin and your baby is flooded with oxytocin and you start breastfeeding and the bond is sealed like it's pixie dust. The love hormone just takes over. And it's just much more complicated than that. (laughs) And their oxytocin isn't the only thing that's at work. There's also all our body's stress system, cortisol and allopregnanolone, the things that shape how our bodies respond to stress and regulate stress are pushed to the absolute max during the end of pregnancy in particular. And then there's this huge transition in the early postpartum period where there are these systems that are in our brains that are driving our stress response and regulating it. And those scales kind of get tossed in the air (laughs) at the same time that progesterone and estrogen, all of that is changing too. And it's just a lot all at once. And so even if we have an oxytocin response, it's not going to feel the same. It's just not going to feel the same from person to person. And so often we frame this in terms of maternal love, that you're going to feel this overwhelming love. And how I came to see this instead, as I looked at this research, was the adaptive parental brain is really driving us to pay attention. That's driven by changes in our brain circuitry around motivation and meaning-making and vigilance And attention can feel all sorts of ways. Attention can feel warm and full of love and that rush of warmth, it can also feel like worry. It can feel like something in between. It can, moment to moment, it can feel different. But what our babies really need from us, before love even, is our attention. It's also
0: not... A moment. I'm thinking. Is it the, What's the movie? Is it Waitress? Amy? It's Carrie Russell, and she's pregnant the whole time. She's in a kind of abusive relationship, and what is she going to do? And then the. She has the baby and kind of the last moment of it is she's looking at the baby and she turns to the abusive husband. She's like, get out. Her whole life comes into focus when she looks at the baby. And I perseverated on that after having my first like, I'm not having that experience at all. The lighting of the whole movie changes. It's like warm glow. It's weeks and weeks after bringing a baby home. There's not one moment it snaps into place. And that's the moment you live in forever. And it's also not I remember turning to my mom and I said, when does this feeling of terror and worry go away? And my mom who wasn't inside my brain said, well, you kind of have that forever. You always worry about the kids. And it was pretty much the worst. I laughed with her later. I was like, that was not the right response. But I felt, oh, I missed the moment of the orange glow. I only got the moment of the white hot terror. Well, Carrie Russell got to live in the glow, but I guess I got to live in the white hot terror. And that's where I'm always going to be.
1: Because you're a bad person, because you're not getting it like you're supposed to get it. It was supposed to happen like Carrie Russell. There's something wrong with me.
0: Or just because I'm wired the wrong way, I guess. Like I guess 99.9% get the Kerry Russell orange filter and I got the terror filter and oh well. Yeah, but that's
1: not true. Like that was never true. The Kerry Russell orange filter.
0: And it changed eventually, but when
2: I was in that place, it would have been nice if somebody could have reached in and explained that to me. How much different would that experience have been if you had anticipated some of that? If you knew like, it can feel lots of different ways and it might feel like white hot terror. And that process, that feeling actually might be part of your adaptation. Like, It might not be a sign that you're broken and a bad mother already. Yeah. Would have been nice. Yeah. Would have been nice. Yes. I feel this way too. Once I I started looking at this research, that It's kind of like what it did for me. I was able to look back at that time and realize that was intense. I could have definitely used some professional support and just different kinds of personal support in my life. But also, like a good part of that was productive. (laughs) Like it was my brain really honing in on my baby and his well being and trying to figure it out. It's that like golden hour moment that is so often described, not only in pop culture, but also in parenting books and childbirth preparation books. Is one way it can go. And perhaps even more common is something different. It's a little bit of that plus worry. You know, it's like ambivalence, it's multiple things at once. Darby Saxby, who's director of the Center for the Changing Family at the University of Southern California, she does a lot of work on parents and in particular on fathers. But she told me that one of her mentors said, parenting is so, so important to the species that there will be redundancy. <laughs> you can have the beginning of the bond be in that those first moments when they put your baby on your chest. But if your baby goes to the NICU or if you don't feel that particular kind of bond, There's lots of other opportunities for you to begin to have those feelings over time. It's a process. Absolutely.
0: And it's not two options. I think one thing that confused me was that it's either warm glow of perfection or it's postpartum depression where you're crying or having thoughts, you know, dark thoughts. I was like, I'm not crying. I'm not depressed. But that there's a wide range of ways that as your brain
2: fires, that you're biology may be responding to that. Exactly. I say in the book that I thought that postpartum depression was sort of like the flu, like you had it or you didn't have it. In reality, it's like a very messy way of describing one end of a spectrum of distress and adaptation. Postpartum depression isn't one thing, for starters, and the whole full spectrum has a very wide array of experiences.
1: I want to talk about why the baby-parent relationship is actually a two-way street and how it continues to change our brains, we're talking to Chelsea Conoboy. We'll be right back. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health, and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen,
0: the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health.
1: Fuel sources. If
0: you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your lumen. That is L U M
1: E N dot M E, lumen.me, and use the code Fresh at
0: checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode.
3: Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.
1: So Chelsea, I'm going to give you another quote from the book. You say, new parenthood is a big disruption, but it also comes with a tiny air traffic controller. Can you talk a little bit about how it's actually a two-way street, how we develop our brains together?
2: I love this piece so much for one reason, because I have two very different children. And I love the fact that the way my brain adapts, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. It's really changing in response to our particular kids. So we talked about how the hormones really kind of prime the brain to be changed in new parenthood. And then the babies come with all of their own stuff. They have their own genes, they have their own temperament, they have their own, you know, physical and developmental needs. And all of that serves as cues to really shape us in response to them. A researcher that from Australia, who I talked to, named Winnie Orchard, the circuitry in our brain that is committed to or involved in reading our own emotions and physical needs and our defining sort of our own sense of self. There are some indications in the research that that basically, like gets extended to include our children. Those systems that have been dedicated to predicting our needs and meeting them then serve to predict and meet the needs of our children. Inherent in that is, you know, there's no factory model for a a child. They're all different. So if our brain is like working to read them and to know them, it's also the way it adapts is adjusts to them. There's some fascinating research that looks at differences between the mothers of babies who were born full term and the mothers of babies who were in the NICU and how essentially there's a difference in the pattern of changes in the early postpartum period that indicates that maybe this is a, a small study, but it seems like the NICU mothers' brains are essentially working harder to read the cues from their babies because their babies can do less. You know, there's less physical expression of cues, even so th- simple things like giving feeding cues and sleep patterns and Another study compares children, mothers of children who are autistic and neurotypical and found some differences in the patterns of their brains that may suggest that their social cognition or their the way that they process their children's social cues are different than the mothers of neurotypical kids. So it's such a counterpoint to the idea that there is this innate switch that flips. It is like a living process. One of the solutions that we've really talked about throughout
0: the episode is helping people just recognize this neuroscience and understand the role it plays and that the outcomes are not as simple as we may have thought and giving that information to people. What are some other
2: solutions that you've come to with this work? my primary goal with this book is to help us know ourselves better. But this book doesn't include a lot of easy tips and tricks and takeaways in that sense, because the truth is this is a really systemic issue. Right. And one of this things systemically,
0: right, is our paid parental leave and the way that we approach
2: motherhood in the United States? So if we were to really embrace the idea that this is a major developmental stage of life, we were to look at that squarely, I really think that point calls on us to take a hard look at our social policies that support or don't support young families, starting with paid leave. I mean, we are one in six countries in the world that doesn't have paid maternity leave and most of them have 12 weeks or more. So you can't have it both ways. You can't see this as a time that requires support support and time, actual time and experience with a baby and expect parents, you know, mothers to go right back to work or fathers to go right back to work and also juggle the needs of having no affordable or quality childcare. <laughs> and, you know, our postpartum care is a wasteland. We have one standard appointment at six weeks where peer countries have much more intensive midwifery and public health services, you know, at the home, multiple visits in the early postpartum weeks covered by insurance. And our professional organizations, you know, the American College of OBGYN has said we need a much more holistic approach to postpartum care. That, that six week appointment punctuates a period of time that is devoid of care for new mothers. I think their words, and this was years ago, you know, they've called for reform and it hasn't happened. I really think it goes back to the, all of these things, our lack of paid leave, our lack of childcare, our lack of real, meaningful postpartum care goes back to this idea that people in power believe that we have what we need to do this work because it's innate in us. Because it's innate. Right,
1: exactly. We're giving ourselves a pass. Well, moms will just know how to do this. They don't need support or care or training or empathy or weekly mental health visits because they'll just know
0: the circuit will flip. You know, the systems are not going to change tomorrow. It is still useful to hear and would have been useful to me to hear, okay, you had a baby on Thursday, your husband went back to work on Monday, you didn't have a ton of support, you had one six week appointment where they were like, are you depressed? No. Okay, off you go. Even when the systems don't change, understanding that that's a lot to ask of a new mom, even an older, well established mom with a lot of training and reading and all of that. I think it's still useful before the systems change in terms of a solution to be able to say to moms and to be able to say to moms as their peers or in books or on a podcast, it is actually not normal to expect you to have a baby on Thursday, have your husband go back to work on Monday and like you're on your own and figure it out.
2: Yeah, And how about we start in prenatal care, having conversations, having it be a standard part of prenatal care to take an assessment of someone's risk for postpartum mood and anxiety disorders and connect with them with psychotherapy while they're pregnant, not when they're already in crisis, but when they're at risk, they have stressful life events, they have a history of depression and anxiety, they have a complicated pregnancy. That kind of risk assessment does not happen in any standardized way, even though we know what some of the risks are, even though there's federal guidance that says that psychotherapy should be covered in full for all people. So in theory, at least, we don't have enough psychotherapists. It's certainly not enough specializing in that time of life, but it should be available to people at no out-of-pocket cost to them.
1: There's another easy fix, it seems to me. I mean, changes with one encounter at a time, but that prenatal care and visits and Lamaze classes and all of that should focus on how your brain will change, non-birthing parent, right? Non-biological parent, adoptive parent, because studies show that they do. Your brains change also. And if your brain changes, and this is a big change for you, I feel like that changes the conversation about how much we expect that parent to be involved in a way that includes them.
2: Yeah. It's one area where I really feel some hope and because I I think that as more non-gestational parents are be, you know, committed caregivers, there's much more involvement, increasing involvement from fathers, more, you know, non-binary and gay families are becoming parents and telling the stories and talking about how the systems don't work for them. And I think as more people sort of feel that Sense of capture by their babies, you know, that shift in their own internal selves, that hopefully they will carry that forward into their own positions of power, whether they're employers or politicians or just helping to shape the conversation around New Parenthood.
1: We've been talking to Chelsea Connaboy. Her new book is Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Rewriting the Story of Parenthood. So Chelsea, tell us where we can find you and your work.
2: My website is motherbrainbook.com and I have a, a newsletter there folks can sign up for if they'd like. I loved this book. It's full of research, my favorite thing. <laughs>
1: yeah. And I really think it's going to change minds in a way that's so important. Thanks for
0: talking to us today. Thank you. Thank you both. We'll link to everywhere you can find Chelsea in our show notes. And yes, thanks so much for joining us today. This is really fun. Thank you. Thank you.